0: team for leading us in music today. Go ahead and have a seat, and before we pray, uh, turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, but before, as you're turning there, I just want to remind you all, wow, that uh, coming up December 11th is is the great Trinity Light Fight. I have no idea. Is that me? Ah, uh, that you were supposed to give. Man, I have no idea what is uh, what is doing that up here. But, um, uh, anyways, December 11th is the Great Trinity Light Fight. And I'm going to switch to this mic while I make sure everything is plugged in properly here. Anyways, um, we had uh, hundreds of people here last year for that event. I, I don't even know how many, 700, 800, something like that. There was a lot of people here, and it was really, really a, uh, a wonderful time. Um, we're hoping this year we're going to bring some food trucks in. We're, uh, we're hoping to have maybe 15 booths set up. Um, we're we're, we're going to try and bring people into the parking lot a lot better this year. And instead of letting anybody park in here, we're going to bring people in both driveways and kind of start them there. Uh, so just a big community family event. However, at this point, we have one people, one couple signed up to do greeting and three groups signed up to do light. Uh displays. And so uh, we need help and we need lots and lots and lots of help. So whether it's uh, greeting, whether it's helping people uh, just get where they need to go, whether it's uh, signing up and doing a, a light display, some of the people who did light displays last year are not going to be able to do them this year. So um, whether it be any of those things, we would encourage you to sign up quickly for the light fight. There's two ways to do that. Number one is to call the office and let us know what you wanna do, whether that's volunteering in, in uh, welcoming or to do a light display. Or there's a form online, there's probably even info in your worship folder this morning, uh, but there's a form online to be able to fill out and let us know what uh, what you want to do. Whether it's from a display or a greeting or anything else in between, uh, that form is there for you to sign up so that we can know you're, you're going to help. Really, um, we got way more community response than we expected last year. The, re- the community is already responding to uh, posts on social media about the fact that this is coming up, and so it's going to be a need opportunity uh, for our our community and for families to come and just have a little fun around the Christmas season. And so it's really one of those things, kind of an all hands on deck thing. We need everybody uh, ready and available. So um, let's plan on that. See if that's uh, any better. Um, that being said, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 21 through 26. Let me open up uh, my copy of God's Word here today and my notes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered as your people today. We're grateful that you have called us out of the world and have called us into this assembly. We're grateful that you have uh, formed a people for yourself out of the world, out of the sinners that we were, to be a bride for your son, to be loved and honored and cherished and treasured despite our sinfulness, because you are a loving and kind and gracious God who loves us and delights in us and is pleased to to call us not only your children, but as a body, uh, the bride of your son. And we never forget the privilege that we have in, in gathering as a church to sing your praise, to hear from your word, to hear you speak to us right out of the pages of Scripture. Father, would you give us uh, a willingness to understand what is said, and Lord, maybe even more than ever soft hearts, as as, uh, there is none of us in this room who escape the, the, the difficulty of anger and then who are thereby called murderers. Father, that is no light thing. but None of us are beyond your redemption. And none of us are beyond your power to heal and to reconcile us to yourself. And so give us soft hearts to be willing to hear what is said today and to obey. Father, we want to pray and and continue to pray this month for uh, Inner Varsity and their ministry here at at Whitman. Um, Lord, as as they're still seeking somebody to come, either come here or come from here to serve in that ministry, Lord, would you raise up somebody to Uh, To take that on. And Lord, would you let us be faithful to reach out with the gospel uh, in the community that we live as well. Lord, we pray that that those who uh, are here who are uh, either in small groups or small group leaders or are working with InterVarsity in some capacity, Lord, we pray that you would give them opportunities to share the gospel with people and that you would draw people to yourself. Lord, we pray that those uh, student leaders who are leading despite um, not having somebody here full-time or even Whatever, uh, however that works, Lord, that they're, they're looking for somebody to come and minister here without the support of somebody, uh, with a, of a missionary here to, to care for them, to train them, to, uh, to help them with challenges, Lord. They, they continue to minister. And so, Father, we just pray that they would have joy in that service and, and that there would be joy in their leading uh, of, of your people. Um, Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would just um, continue to use them to, to be bold with the gospel and to draw people to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would put it in the hearts of people to, uh, to seek out small groups and to be placed into small groups and to study your word and to hear the gospel. And Lord, if they don't know you, ultimately to come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. And Lord, if they... If they do know you to have a deeper and deeper walk. Lord, we pray that that as students travel from around the the country and maybe even around the world to come to school here, uh, particularly for those who are believers or who will become believers, Lord, we pray that you would put them in a local church and that they would be connected to your people and discipled well and would grow in grace and in the knowledge of your word. Lord, open our eyes to your word and be glorified in it today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I turned off or on? It got quiet up here. Y'all can hear me. Okay, good. Um, according to the CDC, according to the CDC, this is where I got my statistics today. Uh, they go back to 2020, by the way. But according to the CDC, there are nearly 25,000 deaths a year by murder. That's almost 70 a day. If we were to add suicides to that, which is just another form of murder, suicide is simply self-murder, we would add another 46,000 deaths per year, bringing us to a total of 71,000 murders in the U.S. annually, or 195 per day. If we were to add abortion to that list, which is just another name for infanticide, which is also murder, we would add annually another 930,000 deaths in the U.S., bringing our total to 1 million murders annually, or 2,740 per day. Now, this should not surprise us, the first crime recorded in Scripture is murder, when Cain killed his brother Abel. And there is not a human civilization that does not prohibit murder. You might say, well, what about cannibals? They eat people, after all. Even within a tribe, even if they eat people from other tribes, murder is prohibited. And I think this, for us, is evidence that we were made in the image of God. There is a fundamental understanding and distinction in every society between people who are created in the image of God and the rest of creation. And so as such, we know that there is something inherently wrong with murder, with taking the life of somebody else. But the question before us is, what is murder? Is it merely taking the life of someone else? Well, in order for us to understand what Jesus is saying here about the connection between murder and anger, we have to understand that Jesus is raising the bar. If you think back to two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And while that seemed like it was something impossible to the people of that day, like how can my righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? They're full-time law obeyers. There's there's never anything wrong with them. It baffles me. Uh, It doesn't baffle anybody who spends any time in the home of a pastor, but it baffles me when people... uh, start having this impression that, that, that there's nothing wrong in the life of a pastor. Their families always go perfectly. They never argue. In fact, man, I, I remember one time I was preaching, and I said something about Jennifer and I having got in a fight. I kid you not. I got in, uh, by which I mean an argument, um, I got like a 20-minute voicemail from somebody who never left a name Saying that because we had gotten in an argument, clearly I had married the wrong person and I needed to divorce her and find the right person that God had for me. It's just crazy. We are not perfect. My job is, yes, in part to be an example. But my job is to stand here week after week and proclaim not my perfection, but the perfection of Christ. But the Pharisees and the the scribes were masters at simultaneously presenting their own perfection and, in order to attain their perfection, lower the bar of what obedience to the law looked like. A little bit like like playing a game, playing a board game with somebody who's constantly changing the rules in their favor. This is what the Pharisees did. Well, yes, I understand I made that promise and I swore by the temple, but I didn't swear by the gold on the temple, so I'm not bound by my promise. Oh man, if only I would have known you had to swear by the gold on the temple and not the temple itself, I would have not been tricked by the Pharisees. They were masters at lowering the bar. And Jesus, in presenting himself as the ultimate lawgiver and the actual law obeyer, is raising the bar up to where it was. And he does so, and we're going to look over the coming weeks. I had initially intended to look at two per week for three weeks. But when I got into this one on anger, I thought, there's enough here for ten sermons. Why try and pack two of these into one Thing And so I said, we're just going to take anger on its own this week. But Jesus is raising the bar back up to where it should be. And he does these with these six antitheses, where he says something or some combination of the words, you have heard it said, or one translation that I have with me today says, you heard that the ancients were told like this translation. And the reason why is because Jesus is not arguing with the law. He's not saying that something had gone wrong with the Old Testament scriptures and therefore he's now to fix what was wrong with what was given to us. No, he's he's cor- correcting and criticizing not the scriptures but the teaching of the scriptures in that day. Be- because if you lived in this time, you didn't have your own Bible. They were incredibly expensive. They had to be written by hand. And and getting a copy of the Bible was about impossible. And so you were dependent upon going to either the temple if you had the privilege of living in Jerusalem or a synagogue if you lived anywhere else in the world and hearing the teaching about the scriptures from the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus is not criticizing the, the, the scriptures, but he is criticizing or really setting himself over those who would present themselves or, or who had taught the law wrongly. And so he, he, he uses these sixth antitheses, if you will, you have heard it said, but I say to raise the bar back up. And he does so by teaching on anger and murder, lust and adultery, divorce and remarriage, keeping our oaths, retaliation and love he doesn't say it was said but i say rather what he says is you heard it said but i say he doesn't say the scriptures used to say this and now they say say this He's not changing the interpretation of God's word. He is uh, changing or correcting the false teaching of the day. Now, what, what does this mean for us? If I could make an aside, I would say this. I often uh, have people come to me timidly when they might disagree with something I have said or taught. Uh, and, and not timidly because, man, maybe he knows more than I do, uh, but, but timidly because. I'm not supposed to correct him. Can I challenge this thinking for a minute? Yeah, Acts 17. Paul had taught in one city, and they ran him out on a rail, and he comes to the area of Berea. Uh, or, or the Bereans, it might be a term you've heard before. And in Acts 17, 11, it said this. Now, these Jews, he always went to the synagogue first, so he goes to Berea, he goes to the synagogue, and he finds some Jews, and he tells them about Jesus. And he says, we're told here, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why, is the question before us. Why were these Jews more noble than the Thessalonian Jews? Here's why. Because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Apostle Paul teaches in a synagogue, and the people say, that's interesting. We have to see this in scripture. Thanks for the word, Paul. But unless we can be convinced by God's word, we can't believe that. And we're told by Luke here that that was a noble task. If you hear what I say and you say, that's nice, Logan, but I'm not going to be convinced unless I hear it from God's word, that is a noble task. You should never feel bad about questioning anything I say. But when you come to me and you say, I'm not so sure about that, can we talk about it? I'm going to say yes. My wife's probably going to laugh here because I get excited about those conversations. Like, you want to open the Bible with me and talk about God's word? Yes, let's do it. I'm excited. I'm totally happy to have those kind of conversations. But we have to open God's word and see what it says. And then submit and subject ourselves to its thinking, whether we agree, understand, or we don't. Uh, that's a a bit of an aside here, but I would say that Jesus is not arguing with the scriptures; he is arguing with the interpretations. So, be noble Christians. Search the scriptures for yourself. Test everything I say against God word, God's word. Bring your questions, even your disagreements, and let's talk about them. I promise you to never try and never give you my opinion, but to do my best to open God's word and help us both to see. What it says. Secondly, he is showing us not only a correction to the way the scriptures were being taught in that day, he is showing us his relationship to the scriptures. While he had subjected himself to the law while on earth, he is nonetheless the lawgiver. He, he, is, he is showing us that he is the one who, who not only properly obeys the law, but properly interprets the law, because he is the one who ultimately gave us the law. And what he's doing here is he's saying, look, you don't just have to be, you don't have to end somebody's life to be guilty of sin before God. All you have to do to be guilty as a murderer is to be angry with someone. That's all it takes. And not only is he going to tell us that it's worthy of a death penalty, but it's worthy of an eternal death penalty. If you've ever been angry wrongly, you're a murderer. Who's a murderer? Every single one of us. Now, I want to be very, very careful here Because Scripture does not condemn some things like just war. It does not condemn some accidental homicide, nor self defense, nor even capital punishment. God is not saying that that there's never, uh, that that every situation that ends somebody's life is, is, uh, is wrong. Sometimes God's word commands us to take the life of somebody else. But here, he's specifically talking about murder. That is the intentional taking of someone else's life against the Word of God. And that all we have to do to be guilty of that is to be angry with someone. No one is exempt from being guilty here, but also, and most importantly, no one is exempt from the redemption of Christ by his death and resurrection. Yes, we've all been angry when we shouldn't have been. Yes, that makes us all guilty of murder if we understand what Jesus is saying here. Verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty to the court. But scripture is full of murderers who have received the grace of God. And I'll just give you two examples, one from the old and one from the new. David murdered the the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. And the apostle Paul oversaw the stoning of Stephen outside the wall in Jerusalem. And God called him to repentance and used him to write most of the New Testament. Yes, we're all murderers. Yes, we're all uttermost sinners. But we're here to preach the perfection today of an uttermost Savior who can save all who would trust him to be their righteousness and who would trust his death and resurrection to cover their sins. But Jesus is telling us that anger is serious. I think many of us often think that's oh, no big deal. It doesn't matter if I'm angry with my spouse or my kid or my co-worker or a church member, it's not that big a deal. But I think Jesus wants us to understand that it's a far bigger deal than we know. So let's look this morning at three cautions, that is three forbidden types of anger, and then two effects that anger has on our life. And I think especially when we get to the effects, we'll see why anger is such a big deal. The first caution is against selfish anger against selfish anger. Verse 22a says, "But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable uh, liable to judgment or will be guilty before the court." Now we must be clear here that scripture does not just absolutely forbid all forms of anger. Jesus is clearly angry when he is recorded as clear, cleaning out the temple uh, in John chapter, well, I put John chapter 2 here in my notes, but that would not be correct. But Matthew 21, and also John, uh, when Jesus cle- cleanses the temple of the money changers who are using God for their own profit and their own gain, and, and, and it's, it's really just uh, just robbing and stealing from the people who are coming to worship God, Jesus is angry. We're not presented with the idea that he's out of control because he sees what's going on in the temple. He doesn't have a whip on him. We're clearly told in Scripture that he went and made a whip and then used the whip to drive the animals and the money changers out of the temple. Unless we should think it's blind rage that is controlling him, when he gets to the birds, he stops, he opens the cage, and he lets them out. While Jesus was angry... That people, the money changers, were using the worship of God to steal from people. When they were turning literally the temple into a racket, he was angry. But that doesn't mean he was out of control. We're also told uh, to be angry by Paul in Ephesians and yet not sin. So what is Jesus getting at here when he talks about anger against a brother? Well, I think what he's speaking about is selfish anger. The word here used for anger is a simmering type of anger. I think for many of us, we picture anger as this explosive fit of rage. but That's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's talking about the simple refusal to let go of a grudge that ongoing resentment that builds and builds and builds and then, and then characterizes every interaction with somebody. And at the slightest infraction, you think, well, you always, or you never. He always does. She never does. It doesn't necessarily have to be explosive. It is simply this, this keeping track of those things that are wrong that that ultimately lead us to this place where we have this deep-seated, growing resentment and anger towards somebody. Hebrews 12, 25 says that this kind of anger is a root of bitterness. That this kind of anger is a root of bitterness. It is anger for selfish reasons. Because somebody has done something to you, maybe even repeatedly. And when that resentment, when that bitterness, when that frustration begins to, to color the whole relationship, you are guilty of murdering your brother, your husband, your wife, your children, your coworkers, whoever. It doesn't have to be an explosive, violent fit of rage. I think sometimes there are places that do show us how often we we see this kind of anger grow, even if it's not violent or explosive. It's pretty evident. Uh, You don't have to go far in public. Just, just Just watch what happens when somebody makes a, a mistake. In fact, I was pulling up to the roundabout over here the other day, and a car was coming around, and I couldn't see another car beyond it, and I started to go. Then I saw the other car. I stopped. It wasn't even close to a collision, but, but I got some interesting sign language from this guy as he went around the roundabout. We see this kind of anger coming out very, very easily I think for me, one of the the examples, I know I've spoken this before, is just to see how badly people might treat the person at Walmart who's been tasked with checking your receipt. This kind of anger that just, it's lying under the surface. And then we murder another driver, or the receipt checker, who is made in the image of God. The second type of anger that I think Jesus is referring to here, and this is going to be interesting, you might say to yourself, well, I don't see how this is anger. But the second type of anger presented to us here is slander. Slander, verse 22b. But um, what Jesus goes on to say here in verse 22b, he says, and whoever says to his brother, Raka... There's no good translation for us for the word raka. It kind of carries the idea of empty head. We might say idiot. This is anger that comes out in biting words towards others. It's taking up Satan's work as a slanderer and saying bad things about people or, or, or belittling people who are made in God's creation. What do you say to people when you are quick to get upset or frustrated at them? The ensuing consequence for this type of anger that would cause us to slander someone else is given to us here that we shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. One translation, the NASB says the Supreme Court, not the Supreme Court as in the Supreme Court here. It's not a title there. It is simply the translation. It is the highest court in the land. To simply let that anger or resentment grow to the point where it comes out in saying something bad about others leaves us guilty to the highest court in the land. When that anger that's bubbling under the surface comes out in, in, in saying things, whether it just be, oh, what an idiot, we are guilty to the highest court. And then the third form of anger that Jesus prohibits here is condemnation. Condemnation. Notice here that that anger that's bubbling below the surface that comes out in speaking ill of someone ultimately leads to condemning their character. Because Jesus goes on to say, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This, this idea of uh, a fool, the, the Greek word is the word we get our word moron from, and it may also be connected to a Hebrew word that means to, to rebel. It's basically the idea of saying that someone is stupid and godless. Of course, Psalms teaches us that the fool says there is no God. So there is a connection between foolishness and godlessness. But if we just look at what Jesus is saying here, and we might put it in some kind of modern parlance, it would be something like this. Combining the the slander with the condemnation, it would be something like, Go to hell, you idiot it's not only speaking of the foolishness of their thinking but of the condemnation of their character and their worthiness of going to hell. Jesus says that this person will not only be liable to the to the court, the highest court in the land, uh, but to the fire of hell itself. In other words, those who condemn others are worthy of God's condemnation. And if these three warnings don't get the point across clearly enough that it doesn't have to be fits of violent rage that make us guilty, it is simply that that underlying frustrated anger that comes out in biting words and condemnation of character at times. We see now two effects that this kind of anger has on us that, that really show us just how serious Jesus is. And the first is that it affects our worship. It affects our worship. This is a a, a vertically uh, uh, oriented problem. Notice verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, this would be a reference to the temple. If you are at the temple, you've brought your sacrifice, you've brought your offering, you're ready to, to present it before God. And there you remember that your brother has something against you Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. This isn't just, again, random thoughts with Jesus. We so often cherry-pick this verse out, and and the principle still stands that, that whether we're wronged by somebody or whether we've done the wronging, we're to go make it right. But this is connected to the idea of anger, and that's made clear to us in verse 23 where it says either therefore or so in varying translations. There's a conjunction here. Because this anger is so serious... Therefore, if you are presenting your offering to God, leave it. Go and make things right. If you come to worship God personally in your morning or evening quiet times or corporately, and you realize there that someone has a justifiable complaint against you, maybe it's regarding your anger or your resentment, some way that you have wronged them, then you have to go make that right first. God is telling us that while our relationship with him is of ultimate priority, you can't have a broken relationship with people and think that things are okay between you and God. If there's anger in your heart that's undealt with, that's bubbling up under there, that leads you to to, to say harsh things or condemning things or, or character defaming things, God's like, you need to go deal with that first, and then come worship me. This isn't a new concept, by the way. Um, In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11, uh, we're told this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats." And then in verse sixteen and seventeen, in other words, he's saying to them, "You bring me offerings, you bring me fat and lambs, you bring me fat and bulls, and I'm tired of them. I don't want them. Why not?" Verses sixteen and seventeen. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. And what is the good that he wants them to do? Notice that he shifts from this broken down relationship between Israel and him to the way that they interact with other people. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We cannot... We absolutely cannot think that we have broken relationships with people even if it's just a little bit of frustration and think that our relationship with God is okay. It just doesn't work that way. If you were to offend and sin against my wife, You can count on the fact that we would not be okay until it was worked out. And it's as if Jesus is saying here, you can't think that you can have offenses and sin and murder and anger against my bride and pretend that things between you and me are okay. Our worship is affected by our relationships made reference last week or two weeks ago, I can't remember exactly when it was, that oftentimes in our mobile society, we, when, when something doesn't go right in a church or somebody offends us, we just go to the next church down the road. But if you leave that unresolved here and go there, God is still going to say, things aren't right between us. We must take seriously not only our relationships in this world, but, but our, our relationship with God as affected by those relationships. If, if you are resentful or angry towards someone, it is affecting your relationship with God, whether you want to admit, admit it or not. And so first, our worship is affected by anger. And secondly, our relationships are affected by anger. Verses 25 and 26 shift from this vertical effect of anger in our worship to a horizontal effect of anger. In verse 25, he says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. What does this have to do with the law now? What does this have to do with lawsuits and courts and and jail? Well, in this day and age, if somebody owed you money, which, you know, you didn't really go to the bank. If you needed money, you had to borrow it from somebody who had money. And if you did not repay your debts, they could throw you in jail. And they could make you work from jail or they could enslave you until you had paid off your debt. And Jesus is drawing on that very familiar imagery. He's saying, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. Or uh, there's a Roman copper coin that was equivalent of about a quarter of a day's wage. It's, it's just to say that you, you, won't, you won't get out of jail until you pay the last penny. Here's the principle I think Jesus is, is, uh, is bringing to bear on us. He said, look, if, if there is something relationally between you and somebody else, if there's something that could turn into resentment, if there's something that could turn into anger, if there's anything that could possibly result in a breakdown in your relationship, the best time to deal with it is always now. See, inherently what we do is we go, oh, that's not a big deal. But then our thoughts don't match that statement. We stew on it. We think about it. We replay the offense over and over. And then we begin to characterize the person. You never, you always, and next thing you know, we're guilty of murder. And half of the time, that person doesn't even know they've done anything wrong. The time to deal with things in our relationships is always now. Don't wait. If you've offended someone or someone's angry with you or you're angry with someone because they've affect, uh, offended you, letting resentment and bitterness grow is never the best policy. Go deal with it now but before it's too late. And until you do, your, your worship with God will not, not be acceptable. This is not licensed to nitpick. If you can let something go, let it go. But if you can't, work it out. Because when we have that anger, when that resentment grows, when we begin to characterize people to it, and our 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 relationships have broken down and our worship has broken down, we're all guilty of murder. So how do we how do we fight anger in our lives? How do, we, how do we fix, in some ways, really something God has to do in us? But, but how do we come to this place where, where we can stop resenting people, stop being angry with people, no matter how seething and under the surface or explosive and volatile we are? How, how do we stop being angry? Well, I would give four suggestions. Four suggestions. Number one, stop thinking that you know how to orchestrate your circumstances better than God. Stop thinking that you know how to orchestrate your circumstances better than God. See, most of the time, when I get angry, whether I'll admit this or not, whether these words have gone through my head or not, fundamentally, I'm thinking, God got my circumstances wrong. If I just wouldn't be in this position, if they wouldn't have treated me that way, if I wouldn't have got laid off, if my wife would jest, if my kids would jest, if my husband would jest, if my family would jest, if my church would jest, if whatever it is, if if somebody just wouldn't have done that thing, I wouldn't be angry. God, you got my circumstances wrong. How could you possibly let me be here? We have to stop and remind ourselves. That no matter what's going on externally in our lives, God has never, at one moment, ever got any of our circumstances wrong. So first, we understand that God hasn't got our circumstances wrong. Second, we admit that God is better at orchestrating our circumstances than we ever could. I I certainly think I know how God should orchestrate my circumstances from my perspective. But he is working all things to the good of those who love him. Not just my good, but all people's good. Thirdly, we understand that our circumstances are better than we deserve. Even in those most difficult of times, what we deserve is to be delivered over to judgment in the Supreme Court and sentenced to a fiery hell. We've already been subjected to that guilt already, every single one of us. And no matter what's going on in life around me, no matter how hard the circumstances get, no matter how much I think I've lost, no matter how much we're persecuted as as Christians, which may come someday, I don't know, we, we are getting better than we deserve. Lord, how could you let me endure this? Lord, how could you let us be persecuted like that? Lord, Lord how could you let, uh, let, let believers in other countries, because we're certainly not facing this, be killed? And his answer is, well, yes, they were killed. And then they entered my rest. And whether it's those circumstances or the eternal rest in his presence that follows, it's better than what we all deserve. Because what we deserve is condemnation, execution, and damnation. But because Jesus was condemned for us, executed for us, and resurrected victoriously, what we get is salvation. We are all treated far better than we deserve. And lastly, we remember and remind ourselves that even Jesus was not spared the difficulty of life and even death and grief and the effects of sin. God has never got our circumstances wrong. And he is far better at orchestrating our circumstances than we could ever be. And at any moment of any given day, every single one of us is being treated far better than we deserve. And even Jesus didn't escape the sufferings of this world. But because of Jesus, we will, no matter how things get in this life, stand before God, be welcomed into his kingdom. Be offered eternal rest and perfection. What do we really have to be angry about? I want to close with a reminder from James chapter one, verse 20. James tells us this: that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, we, we must confess that every single one of us has been angry, wrongly selfishly, we've slandered, we've condemned, we have bought into the lie, whether we understand it or not, that, that you have got our circumstances wrong. And then we've been angry at times with people, and at times with you. And then we lower the bar and pretend like it's okay and it's, it's no big deal. But you never call us to selfish anger, only righteous anger. You never call us to anger when we're wronged, but when you are wronged. But I, even as I'm praying here, I'm reminded that, uh, that the first New Covenant believer, the first person to express faith in Christ after his death, was a murderer who put him on the cross. And if there is salvation for David and for Paul and for the Roman soldier, then there is certainly salvation for us. Lord, would you help us to be those who who understand that if your anger can be satisfied at the cross, so must ours. That if your wrath against our sin which is truly an offense against you, can be met out at the cross and satisfied and spent so that you never deal with us in anger again, that we have no business expressing anger, especially towards your people. May we never be guilty of selfish anger. May we be very, very cautious with what we believe to be righteous anger, knowing that we easily confuse the two. Would you help us to be of those who work things out quickly, who understand that the time is now to resolve conflict, and who raise the bar, not so that we might feel bad about ourselves and our guilt, but so that we might feel glorious about our Savior and what he has redeemed us from. Let the knowledge of our being murderers by means of anger Bring us to a place of praise and gratitude for not only the redemption that you have lavished on us in Christ, but also, Lord, for the love that you have poured out on us even before that. You have loved us, pursued us, that you reconciled us to yourself. Lord, you have clearly, in Christ, modeled what you are calling us to here. You, you sought us, even providing everything that was necessary to, to make resolution between yourself and us when you were the offended party and you were the one who was angry. May we be reminded even today, the blessed are the peacemakers. And may we be quick to make peace, quick to let go of anger quick to glorify you, knowing that that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. May we be salt and light in the world as we put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display by acting appropriately in terms of our anger and conflict resolution and everything else you want to do through us for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing this last song.